Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. This podcast includes text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show contains identifying terms that may now be out of date. June, 1957, The Ladder. Transvestism, a cross-cultural survey by Barbara Stevens. Transvestism is the tag that labels the lesbian. Truly self-confident people have no need to express themselves or barricade themselves by costume. AC, New York, New York. My roommate and I are transvestites. 
We wear slacks almost always on our off work hours. We are comfortable in them and we have no problem adjusting to the stairs of passerbys. As far as dresses, heels, and stocking holders, the most uncomfortable contraptions men have invented to restrict the movements of women. Despite the statement of purpose for the Daughters of Belitis requiring a dress code of so-called female attire, several women still show up to the meetings in blue jeans or slacks. One letter to the Daughters from New York muses on femmen, F-E-M-M-E-N, suggesting this new term for these females and male bodies, as they wrote it. In the pages of the latter, the members discuss where and when it's safe to dress this way, and whether or not it's ethical to do so. Of all the intellectual rubbish in the history of mankind, none has been more voluminous than the conventions and taboos of dress. The cult of conformity itself remains to be questioned. Those who depart from the rules are punished for the crime of not behaving. Just seven years ago, most of these homosexuals didn't have a word for themselves. Many of them thought they were the only one in the world with their strange condition, quietly submitting to conformity. But now, more than 5,000 copies of a one-magazine issue hits the newsstands nationally each month in the late 50s. The latter and the Mattachine Review are in high triple digits. The pass-along rate of these magazines from one homosexual to another is uncountable. The glimmers of a secret society once barely visible in the pitch-black parks and the low-lit bars is quickly becoming a wildfire, alerting the entire nation to its existence. Now, no one can deny the existence of a homosexual society, and homophiles are getting hungry for more freedom. They're starting to get these small tastes of it. Like, I'm happy to now know fellow homosexuals, but it's not enough if we have to speak in code. I'm happy to meet homosexuals in a gay bar, but it's not enough if I have to dress just right to avoid the cops. And because we've met, and we've talked, and we've learned that we deserve to live just as freely as anyone else, now I know that this life is not enough for us. A militant movement forward has become inevitable. Previously, we agree that defiance and way-out expression bring scorn and derision upon the many. And most of these social rebels see the folly of their faggotry in time. Most hair fairies, also referred to as street queens, use feminine pronouns, heavy facial makeup, wear bouffant hairdos, and exhibit many feminine characteristics. Swiveling hips, falsetto voices. I had thought you acknowledged us as human beings, as individuals whom you were fighting for the rights of. Now I see that all you are doing is poking fun. The discreet lesbian will not turn her head on the streets at the sight of a butch in their trousers and definitive haircuts. But for the moment, it still disturbs. The greatest discrimination, the greatest rejection, the greatest prejudice is one homosexual to another. All over the country, members open their new interim issue to see something revolutionary. Their faces are now public. The Mattachine Society leaders gather in the library lounge with their new president for a group photo, just below a small poster of their court jester logo. Mattachine Society has been compelled to accept the resignation of Hal Call. San Francisco as editor of the Mattachine Review, publications director, and as a member of the society due to threats made against various members of the society by Kenneth Swearin, San Francisco attorney, formerly a member of the society and its president. The latter is found in Detroit, Cleveland, and Dallas on the newsstands beside one magazine in the Mattachine Review. If only there was a chapter here in New York or New Jersey, I would be the first to join. This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp.
Barbara Giddings is still hard at work organizing her new Belitis chapter in New York. She started her own newsletter of East Coast DOB activities, which she creates after hours at work. Into the night, Barbara is stenciling, mimeographing, typing, stuffing envelopes, stamping, addressing. She's one of the only women in the organization using her legal name. In the dimly lit office, she stacks up a few hundred envelopes and turns to see her boss. She looks back at Barbara, confused to see her here so late. A copy of the latter lies on the desk. Barbara's boss looks down at the cover. You should be more careful, Barbara. Her boss also quietly keeps relationships with women. A different manager stopping by could have brought grave consequences. Barbara is building her mailing list to 300 women. While boldly mailing her own name on lesbian writing to her subscribers, an action so terrifying to many Mattachine men that they would sooner vanish from the movement, Barbara Giddings is still aiming for more daring direction. Only a few women are meeting with her chapter in person, gathering in the New York Mattachine offices at 1133 Broadway. Discreetly meeting and signing in under pen names isn't taking their message very far outside of the limited group of upper-class white women who have the privilege to subscribe to a discreetly titled magazine sent to their homes in a brown paper sleeve, but not the imperative to show their faces and demand their rights. One daughter suggests, I've been toying with the idea of a more sensational cover for a limited number of ladders for newsstand sales only. Think about it. Include a second run of an additional line with something like, the homosexual woman's viewpoint, or some such crap. More letters come to DOB co-founder Del Martin in San Francisco, urging her to allow them to be more public, especially since one magazine just won their Supreme Court case. Season 1, episode 10? The latter's distributor, Lucian Press, even writes to her. Why don't you put a nicely worded subtitle on your covers? Something like, a review devoted to the female homosexual in modern society. Cops and postal inspectors can tease newsstand salesmen all they want. Gay publications are legal to sell openly now. Still, the DOB leaders refuse to label their magazine cover as lesbian. They focus on DOB membership growth first. In the coming winter, Dell and Phyllis will make their first plane rides ever across the country to New York City to see the growing new chapter. Two women named B and Millie invite the co-founders to their Gab and Java discussion groups held at a member's Manhattan apartment. The daughters are looking for their own office space, as the Mattachine Society has just been evicted from theirs. Months before eviction, Hal Call's resignation letter was passed between the Mattachine board members. A letter from Hal to Tony in New York explained his reasoning for resigning. Frankly, I have got my fill of faceless, nameless crusaders in this cause. Particularly when they sound off so loud make decisions so arbitrarily, and otherwise show up maybe once a month? I'm not abandoning Mattachine, but I believe in it, want to serve in it, and frankly, I need it. But I am going to give the Carpers a chance to carry a load and let them see what they can do with it for a while. He stamps out rumors that he kept secret books, spurned Mattachine correspondence, or wrote himself checks from the jester's dwindling coffers. Pangraphic Press, he believes, is his selfless effort to keep the organization alive. At least one-third of the San Francisco membership in Madison today has come into the society here as a result of my introduction and salesmanship. I don't mean to sound like a conceited ass, but it's true. And I can name them if someone won't go heels over head in a tizzy. Because a name is mentioned. My conviction is that Madison must choose between being an outgoing, selfless effort directed to the public 
or a social club for many members and friends who are, let's face it, social misfits. Why should we have only 115 members out of a homosexual population of at least a million in the six cities where the society exists today? I know this prattle is typical of much that is written about Mattachine. Words, words, words. Hal writes to his friends on the editorial team of One Magazine. I finally got him pinned down, and the goal he will seek is, one, refusal to accept my resignation. That same day, while Hal is writing his letter to his allies in L.A., the Mattachine board votes not to accept Hal's resignation. They call the bluff, as he had called theirs. The Mattachine Review is his press's largest customer, and the Mattachine Society can't survive without Hal's press creating the magazine to promote Mattachine. They're stuck with Hal, and Hal's stuck with them. And two, set up of a publications department independent of the rest of the society, except for general overall policy, which will mean great freedom of action, less interference, and more stability within the responsibility. That one would seem difficult to achieve, until the board appoints young Ron Argall to former President Zwerin's seat. The Mattachine board has no option but to keep Hal, and now Hal has his very own puppet running the Mattachine. He'll print what he wants. The faces behind the names. A new series is launched by Hal and the Mattachine Review, publishing biographies and photos of people working on his magazine, including himself. It's surprisingly well-received, considering the interim photo scandal of the previous episode. Showcase, hosted by Fanny Hurst on WABD. Showcase is a program featuring a variety of relevant social issues hosted by Fanny Hurst. And today, March 10th, 1958, the production will be the first to feature homosexuality with actual homosexuals talking about it. But there will be no faces, and there will be no names. Groups such as the Mattachine Society of New York are making homosexuals more visible now than ever. New York Mattachino Tony Segura explains under hood and motorcycle goggles... Homosexuality is still punishable with 20 years prison time in New York, and the Mattachine chapter president does not want to risk it on national television. We also have with us Dr. Albert Ellis, noted psychologist. Albert Ellis presents the counter-argument. Homosexuals are neurotic and should seek treatment. Homosexuals must adjust themselves to a heterosexual mode of living. What stereotypes of homosexuals would you like to dispel on the air today, sir? The homosexual is a normal man, Miss Hurst. It is against our interest for any homosexual to make a spectacle of himself. One of our headaches is the screaming feminine type homosexual. Most of us can't stand them, and we have a little luck persuading them to conform. Join us tomorrow for a similar discussion on female homosexuals. Our guests include a member of a new organization, the Daughters of Belitis of New York. Nothing is known about what happens when the cameras go off. There is no public outcry but a discussion is held among the WABD executives. The next day, on set at the final moment, Fanny Hurst is circled by network executives. She runs to her waiting guests, the DOB member and Helen King, Showcase. neither of whom plan to wear masks. Meanwhile, other DOB women watch their televisions at home for the debut of their organization. One member writes to the latter, There I sat, pencil poised over a fresh white sheet of paper on my coffee table. My eyes glued to the face of the bearded gentleman, who apparently introduces the program, Showcase. He was saying in soft, promising tones that we were about to hear a discussion of a very interesting subject. 
I lifted my pencil higher. Thank you for joining us for another showcase. Unfortunately, I must announce that after the high plateau reached yesterday, the station feels we are a little premature. I have been told by WABD executives that we will not be covering the previously announced topic today, but we should talk about something else. Anything else. I swear, as I was dropping my ready pencil, I truly did see the stenciled letters swim across my eyes on the screen. Verboten. I sincerely do apologize. My guest today, Helen King, happens to have also written a book about handwriting analysis, which we may find to be a fascinating topic after all. So that was kind of that. Except for some rather courageous remarks made by Miss Hurst on censorship of valid social questions. To my amusement, at Miss Hurst's prodding, Miss King chose an example of her experiences in her work from a matter that had to do with a homosexual personality. Probably innocent, but I imagine it must have made some executives itch a little. As the host and her guest exhaust the topic quickly, Fanny Hurst wraps up the show early, having nothing else to talk about. I apologize once more that our program today has undergone severe censorship. As we have seen in today's impromptu topic, the nuances of the human mind are still being explored. We have yet to move out of that strange, dark jungle of fear. I hope that our fear of living will soon be replaced with enlightened thoughts and human understanding. Until tomorrow, hail but not farewell. Good afternoon. So many Mattachine men are unwilling to show their faces, and so many Belitis women are unable to reach the opportunity. Dell and Phyllis fly on their cross-country trip to New York's Belitis chapter. In their hotel at 7 a.m., they call up their New York friend who intends to donate anonymously to the DOB. It's obvious you're not New Yorkers. We never get up this early. Dell and Phil head over to Lorraine Hansberry's apartment in Greenwich Village, where the playwright is working on her final preparations before A Raisin in the Sun opens on Broadway. Gushing to the Belitis founders that she wishes she could do more publicly for them and the latter, Hansberry says, I feel I am learning how to think all over again. Dell and Phil understand at this point Many women must choose which cause to fight for. The civil rights movement for people of color is not so welcoming to homosexuals, and vice versa. Very few people are successful at fighting for both. Intimately familiar with this issue, which we now call intersectionality, James Baldwin wrote of his support for his friend Lorraine's choice. Never before in the entire history of the American theater had so much of the truth of black people's lives been seen on the stage. Nevertheless, with her financial support of the daughters and letters exchanged discussing hopes for their minority, Hansberry leaves a record of her sexuality and reveals the difficult choice she's making. Hi there. This is Devlin's granny, Faye Camp. Devlin thought you must be tired of their voice after all that monologuing. Although I can't imagine anyone tiring of Devlin's voice. Nevertheless, I'm here to read this ad and give you a break. This episode is supported by Stitcher Premium. You can join Stitcher Premium for all kinds of shows by using promo code Mattachine for one month free. Listen to some of your favorite shows ad-free with Stitcher Premium, like You Must Remember This, the Hollywood History Podcast, and The Rachel Maddow Show, which personally I am obsessed with. Plus, 
get access to exclusive Stitcher content, bonus episodes, comedy albums, and more. Only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Go to stitcher.com forward slash premium to sign up today. Or I will break you in half. I mean it. Use promo code Mattachine for one month free. Bye now. <laughs> oh my God, that was wonderful. Thank you, Granny. <laughs> Down the streets of New York, Charles Hayden tapes up yellow sheets of paper on storefronts and subways. There goes Miss Mattachine. Flyers everywhere, all through Greenwich Village. A form of advertising not approached by homosexuals yet. Charles recently arrived in New York City from Baltimore. He just shared a weekend with young Ron Argall, the visiting Mattachine leader. Charles read about Mattachine in one magazine. He and Ron daydreamed about a national survey of homosexuals in order to learn more about what they are. But for now, we must find homosexuals and protect them. His flyers announced The Homosexual and the Law, a free lecture for the public to learn about how to beat entrapment arrests, hosted by the Mattachine Society of New York. The conservative Mattachine leaders are annoyed by this young man's loud, unapproved publicity for the event. They don't even know that Charles lied about his age to join Mattachine. He's about to go to Texas to start college. But it's difficult to disprove of Charles's flyering when over 300 people show up to the August 19th lecture. Only 100 can fit inside, and the Mattachine scrambles to find a larger venue. Tony gets up and addresses the crowd in New York City's first major public meeting in support of homosexuality. One of the flyers is torn down by an NYPD officer, and vice detectives read it over. They decide to look for an office for this. Mattachine Society of New York. After the big lecture, cops show up at the Mattachine offices to question Tony, Joe, a few members, and even the landlord of the office several times. When the cops leave, many Mattachinos point the blame to Charles Hayden for the flyers. Others counter, isn't this exactly what we're supposed to be doing, putting ourselves out there and advertising our cause? Either way, the landlord returns to the Mattachine offices with an eviction notice. Like the early days of the Mattachine Foundation, publicity brings out trouble. But trouble is exactly what many homophiles are looking for. Back in Denver, a former public school teacher once known as Carl B. Harding in Mattachine Publications is writing his largest work yet for the organization. After he's fired from teaching in Oakland for being a homosexual, Carl Harding feels freer to use his real name in his activism now. What else can they do to him? So, Elver Barker sets up his Denver Mattachine chapter while writing a 63-page educational handbook explaining how to create your own Mattachine chapter. It covers how to publish a newsletter, research homosexual issues, arrange helpful therapy for members, and all other things Mattachine. It's a huge hit, and it earns him quite a bit of respect throughout the Mattachine Society. Driving from San Francisco to New York City for the next convention, Don Lucas stops off in Denver for dinner with Elver Barker. There's a convenient stop-off on the Lincoln Highway. But with Eisenhower's new interstate system, I was worried it might be a confusing new route. So are things in order for the convention? Oh yes, that's all done and ready. Once the convention is done, Hal and I have several plans prepared for the National Society. And Pan Graphic as well? Yes, to advertise the organization. 
as it has been effectively doing so. I agree. Hal's business has been good for his movement. His business has some issues, yes, but those will subside should we have voting power in the convention. Thus, your convenient stop in Denver. So whoever is in charge determines our morals. Or at least what we're fighting for. Elver, when the votes are cast for new leadership at the upcoming convention, I can't help but be curious where your allegiances will lie. A futile concern. Excuse me? There are too many men trying to get up there for the society to get anything done. You mean how? If the national board isn't receiving a member's dues, but his chapter is collecting them in their local coffers, does that still make the man a Matashino? What do you mean? Who? Oh, you really don't know? What do you know that I don't know? What gets up to Denver? Allegiances don't lie in the presidential vote, Don. The New Yorkers are nominating Kenneth Zwerin as member of the year. They can't. Zwerin isn't a member anymore. He's filing a lawsuit against Mattachine over the photo in interim. Then why are they collecting his membership dues? If New York has been secretly holding Zwerin's dues... New York has intentions more important than a national Mattachine president. And it's high time we stop giving a damn what those masked members do with their money. It's money poorly spent by them and hard fought by us on long drives across the country. Do you think they're planning to break off from us? Start their own magazine? Enough with the infighting and the damn magazines. This hyperbolic procrastination masked as melodrama is only stifling the movement. Denver does not accept leaders who permit their undisciplined emotional instability to disrupt our organizational work. Then let's end it. Will you ask your members to vote against Kenneth Warren? Mm, it would only bewilder them. Another convention, another fight. August 30th, 1958, at the Barbizon Plaza Hotel in New York City, Mattachinos arrive in their suits and ties and Niles Crane realness. The hotel refuses to allow guests to socialize interracially, for which Mattachinos immediately threaten a picket on the hotel. Management decides instead to separate homosexuals from heterosexuals, roping off an area for Mattachine members, no matter their race. When the convention begins, author Donald Webster Corey speaks, then some psychologists follow. Kenneth Zwerin, of course, shows up to speak, insisting that homosexuals should trust their lawyers and instead fight the laws. Hal Call circles a petition demanding Zwerin's removal from the society. Hal also holds a stack of proxy votes from the West Coast. He spent the final days before the convention hitting the streets of San Francisco to double memberships to Mattachine. New members signed their pledge, handed over their dues, and gave Hal the power to vote for them by proxy in New York City. Out of 118 votes at this convention, present and by proxy, Hal holds 92. Intent on removing the masks and bringing the Mattachine Society into public awareness, Hal Call holds the organization in his hands. Showcase host Fanny Hurst takes the podium. Until last March, I've never heard of the Mattachine Society. I knew nothing of homosexuality. I represent the man and the woman on the street. I doubt if my mother ever heard of homosexuality or would have known what it meant. It seems we have come far when we are even disposed to discuss it. Listening to the legal and psychological discussions here at this convention, I understand the topic is brimming with intellectual issues, not heard at the dining room table. We can never hope until the masses of the people understand. The attitude here is good, but you must reach the people. 
until the great, great gadgets of modern communication throw this message out to the people with their slow compassions, their slow thinking, and their own idiom, we won't get the understanding necessary. Attitudes being with the people, they must be towed through TV, magazines, and the newspapers. Miss Hurst, this convention's press release was sent to all New York newspapers, but I heard one editor struck down an article about it on the grounds that it's not fit for a family newspaper. This just shows the size of the job ahead. It must be a slow process of erosion. I do expect my showcase sponsors to present a second program on homosexuality to replace the previous cancel discussion. I'm doing my best. The latter will describe Fanny Hurst's discussion as the emotional highlight of the convention. And as usual, you're hearing the real transcript here. Despite Fanny Hurst's effort, her second episode on homosexuality will never be produced. But the Mattachine leaders aren't concerned with audacious publicity for their cause. They're still distraught over who will hold the power to make those big decisions, who will control the publicity, and how will members be presented to the world? Behind a mask or open? And how will they introduce our community to the world? What will they say homosexuals are? What they want? Whoever is in control in the coming years might define us for the foreseeable future. New York leaders brace for schism, their minds set on independence from San Francisco and a competing publication. They're confident they hold the majority. But as Hal calls for the vote for this next term's publications director, it's clear he will remain in the chair when he slaps down his 92 proxy votes in his own favor. Kenneth Zwerin and his New York allies storm out. With the majority in his own hand, Hal Call pushes his enemies off the board and out of the Mattachine. And he knows exactly how to work young Ron Argall and his own business partner Don Lucas and everyone else now on the board. Finally, the Mattachine Society is completely Hal's to rule for the final days of the jester's life. Ron Argall is swept up with Charles Hayden, the young man who posted the brazen flyers that publicized the Mattachine so well they got evicted. Charles's tenacity is wildly attractive to Ron. Upon his return to L.A., Ron stops in at the One Magazine offices to see his friend Jim Kepner and tell him all about Charles and the West Coast's big win at the Mattachine Convention in New York. Jim asks Ron why he thinks Hal won so swiftly. How did Hal gain so many votes? And why were so many of them proxies? Votes from people too far away from the convention to attend and voice their own opinions. It is a complete fraud. Ron writes to Charles Hayden. I cannot, at this point, advise the various groups to withdraw support from the national organization until I have gotten the evidence. Charles responds, suggesting a plan to start their own group. And the best way to begin is with homosexuals who are already in an organization. Ron should steal the Mattachine's national mailing list. Ron then writes to Hal, trying to have a conversation before he takes that drastic action. But with power fully gained now, Hal ignores Ron's letters. This week on my bonus podcast, Forgotten Fairy Tales, we have an actual fairy tale. Sort of. I'm interviewing one of the founding radical fairies, Joey Kane. You already know his voice. He's Elver Barker. 
I was at something in Buffalo, New York called the Allentown Art Fair, probably in the summer of 69, I think. And these two sort of like long-haired, fabulous, interesting-looking people came up and handed us a pamphlet about Gay Liberation Front and wanted to talk with us about it. The Radical Fairies are a gay consciousness group started by Mattachine creator Harry Hay and others in the late 70s. They started in Arizona and fairy groups spread across the country and still meet today. Joey and I talk about his years with the fairies and what came after for him in San Francisco. He's also become one of my dearest Judies, and it's an honor to have him on the show as both himself and as Elver. Subscribe to The Bonus Show at patreon.com slash queercereal for $3 a month. There are tons of other rewards, too. There's buttons, transcripts of episodes, photos through the research process, more music, a shockingly popular mug with the podcast artwork, and Gay Bar, written by 1950s gay bar owner Helen Branson and published by the Mattachine Society. Check it out, patreon.com slash queercereal. There's a link in the episode notes. Visiting home from Texas, Charles Hayden decides if he's going to be militantly gay, he should just tell his parents. Charles shows his father his Mattachine papers. Charles Hayden Sr. had found his son's diary before. He already knows. He's spoken to a psychiatrist who actually gave him good advice, and Charles Sr. accepted his son as homosexual. But looking over this, these Mattachine documents... I don't think you're going to get very far with this, but do me one favor, will you? Of course. Just don't involve my good name. More disgusted every day. Ready to resign. Ron writes to Charles, having been ignored by Hal for three months. Charles is fed up, too. So he sends Ron's letters detailing Hal's indiscretion up the mountain to Denver, to Elver Barker. We want to start our own organization. Elver passes word to Hal Call that Charles and Ron are plotting. Hal is caught, but continues to dismiss Ron anyway. Envelopes from Charles and Ron then appear in the mailbox of every Mattachine member. Wicker Research Studies. It's a survey. Do you like lesbians? Does red hair make a person less attractive to you sexually? Do you like Tallulah Bankhead? Would you like to have children? Would you want your son to be homosexual? Under Charles Hayden's new name, Randolph Wicker, he receives hundreds of responses from Mattachinos. Leadership is furious that their mailing list has been stolen. Hal scathes Charles Hayden, a.k.a. Randy Wicker, through a series of letters. Wicker boldly returns every message without apology. This is not a grab for power. It's an unauthorized study. He calculates his survey results, while the University of Texas gets wind of this influx of mail. You've been accused of being a homosexual. You have 48 hours to take a lie detector test with the Texas Rangers to prove your innocence, or you can resign from school with nothing on your record. That night, Randy Wicker piles his surveys on a bonfire and watches the evidence go up in flames. Hal takes no action against Ron. He simply waits for membership renewal to come around, knowing Ron will not return. Randy Wicker and Ron Argall make a pact to begin Wicker research studies in earnest. As the New York Mattachine crumbles to barely a handful of members with no office after their eviction, Randy and Ron set out to return to New York, where Wicker will be deemed a disturbing acquisition in the homophile community. 
Hal writes to Elver. We may lose Los Angeles, New York, Washington, and Boston. So be it. Mattachine won't create any favorable impression in any community until it has representatives who can go to such public agencies and lay our cards on the table before them. Why did all this happen? Frankly, because New York officers were failing in their task of informing the police about Mattachine and its work. We got exactly the treatment we asked for. New York refuses to be bold and publicly announce their work. Hal started the Faces Behind the Name series in the review because of the interim photo scandal. And New York leadership still insisted on wearing a mask on television. If we are going to stage public lecture forums and events such as the recent convention in New York and issue publications that purport to be the product of responsible thinking adults, then we must face the absolutely inevitable consequence. We shall have to be known and be willing to stand in the spotlight we are casting upon ourselves. Mattachine is only an idea. It assumes substance only when its members and workers translate this idea into constructive, worthwhile action. It is only by lighting candles that we can dispel the darkness, and the power of our own faith can help destroy the ogre of fear. Elver and Hal hatch a plan to take the Mattachine Society to the public. If our cause is going to succeed, I believe the time's coming, and soon, when we must cease to be cowards. Meanwhile, the daughters are organizing a survey of their own. Florence Jaffe sends out a four-page questionnaire to more than 500 readers of the latter in order to calculate their demographics. Over the year of 1959, 160 responses are returned to the daughters. Florence publishes this first-ever study of lesbians done by lesbians. The latter announces... DOB questionnaire reveals some facts about lesbians. She reports higher-than-average levels of education, professional work, and income for these women. Most are registered to vote and own property, quite different than the average 1959 woman. The results certainly reveal positions of privilege held by the readers of the latter, but the results also show that there is more possibility for privileges when a woman isn't stifled by a relationship with a man. While she has to work harder to gain autonomy in society, a relationship with a woman rather than a man gives them both the freedom to pursue and often achieve their goals. What Florence Jaffe doesn't publish, as she is advised by the Kinsey Institute not to publish, is that most of the women who returned the survey are teachers. Also interesting? A number of persons indicated specifically that they recognized both masculine and feminine elements in themselves. It is probable that a large majority of persons, lesbian and otherwise, have such a mixture of elements, but that awareness of this mixture, as well as the mixture itself, varies from person to person. The Cold War heightened the policing of gender roles, and many of these working women have endured hostility at work from men returning from World War II. So lesbians discuss what it might mean to present themselves with masculinity. Police continue to arrest women in the bars for wearing men's clothing. The daughters of Belitis meetings provide a safer space for them, but still, DOB women often feel endangered by masculine women entering their safe living rooms. Even the slur, dyke, came from semantic roots based on a woman's dress in men's clothing. Historian J.R. Roberts cites the Old English word dight, meaning to dress or clothe, and the Anglo-Saxon English dick, meaning to deck or adorn, likely led to the mid-19th century slang dyked, D-I-K-E-D, and diked out, 
In addition to its obvious sexual roots, dyke became a slang term, often a slur, for a butch lesbian. Many lesbians do not want to associate with other lesbians looking like men. And not only do women playing with gender receive hostility, it becomes obvious that many daughters don't respect men, even homosexual men, because no men have ever earned their respect. It comes in the obvious exclusions previously discussed, and not just by only using male pronouns, they just don't cover women's issues. When Sandy and Stella in L.A. organize speakers for their DOB chapter meetings, women of several classes and races show up, unless the speaker is a man. Then more than half of the regulars don't turn out. So, gender roles have many lesbians in impossible situations. The homophile men ignore their issues and focus on petty fights for power. The cops arrest them if they dress like men. But if they show up in a bar without presenting some kind of butch femme queer coding, the lesbians will assume they're a cop and won't talk to them. Even the founders of the Daughters, Dell and Phyllis, argue about their roles. We played the roles in public, and then we went home and fought about them. The militant Randy Wicker also has written earlier this year in the Mattachine Review on... Effeminacy versus affectation. As far as gender roles in the gay male community, it's about not tarnishing the image of the other men. Earmarks of the affected individual are inflection of voice, mincing steps, and broken wrists deliberately offensive. He explains to the Mattachine readers that gendered behavior makes sexuality visible and not only puts gay spaces in danger, but he also thinks, It is pathetic that this type of homosexual should tend to perpetrate the popular stereotype. And also, crossing the gender binary makes people think we're sick. Society must be allowed to see and learn about a great many average, responsible, and reasonably well-adjusted homosexuals. Sure, let's all be average. Randy Wicker will later change his mind about all of this. The homophile groups are still discussing something still so vague and widely misunderstood. The difference between sexuality and gender. While they might be worried about mincing men and masculine women, the homophile writers are, incidentally, also encouraging what will one day be called transphobia. Many of their readers hear it all as overcompensation. Ridiculous levels of paranoia requiring the community to hold each other in strict roles, whether demanding men lower their voices or demanding women play the butch femme binary. It's all misogyny, forced onto every type of queer person in customized ways. A reader writes in to the Mattachine Review. Well, you've said your pious little piece again, and I suppose all the queer haters approve, but I wonder how the homosexuals feel. You tell us that... The law as it exists must be respected and obeyed. But I say that this is nonsense. Prohibition was destroyed by millions of decent, liberty-loving American drinkers who simply ignored it. And the present vicious sex laws will eventually be destroyed by the millions of decent, liberty-loving American homosexuals who refuse to have their private lives dictated by a bigoted public. Thoreau wrote on the necessity for civil disobedience. Emerson wrote that anyone trying to enforce the fugitive slave laws should have his head split open with an axe. All through American history, there has been the insistence that the individual is superior to the state and that he has the right and ought to resist injustice. We have the right and duty to express our love as we see fit, and I, for one, intend to fulfill this duty to the best of my ability. The Mattachine Society cannot advocate violation of the law but you do not have to stoop to such hypocritical humbug. Another writes from British Columbia. Timid, defensive, apologetic, 
This business of proclaiming from the housetops that proper queer people are not neurotic, but rather as averagely apple pie-ish and more normal than the normals, positively sticks in my craw. Hell, I'm frankly ravingly neurotic and determined to remain that way. I work among normals and have relatives that way, and not for anything would I like to be like them, or be induced in the slightest to try fitting myself into their social milieu. A third reader writes, When people actually have the gall to come right out and ask me whether or not I am a homosexual, I've recently found it impossible to refrain from telling the truth, even in the most embarrassing circumstances. At least I have the satisfaction of watching them squirm when it was they who expected me to lie and squirm. Less interested in the conservative ideology of the Mattachine Society, and often too the Daughters of Belitis, homosexuals continue to frequent their bars no matter the danger and no matter what their homophile magazines say. In seedy neighborhoods like L.A.'s Skid Row, bars like Harold's and the Waldorf allow sexual variants to gather somewhat discreetly. Positioned between these two gay bars, a 24-hour donut and coffee shop called Cooper's sees hustlers and drag queens and trans folks passing through to their respective jobs. Main Street is more than a hangout for sex workers of all genders and races. Cooper's is where gay men, lesbians, and transgender people meet for a drink outside of the gay bars, so they're less likely to have trouble with the law. Yet still, LAPD officers pass through to harass pedestrians. On a night in May 1959, two cops enter Cooper's Donuts and demand to see IDs. They announce that L.A. law requires your faces to back up your name on the ID. And your clothing better match your legal sex or you will be arrested. The officers grab two drag queens, or possibly two trans women, and a gay man, and take them out to the patrol car. One of the cops pushes the three queers into the car, and a donut comes flying through the air and hits the officer. He turns around to see trash, donuts, and full coffee cups soaring toward them. Trans people, drag queens, lesbians, and gay men spill out of Cooper's donuts, chasing the officers down. The arrested three slip out of the car and run. The cops grab their nightsticks and call for backup. As they fight the angry queer mob forming on L.A.'s Main Street, more cop cars pull up around them, and the first riot for queer liberation breaks out. The homophiles told the world that we exist. But what has it earned for us? Just to be told to lower our voices and wear a mask? The cops will still raid. Homophiles can play the roles and they might be safe. So they dismiss the minority within their minority causing transgender people to require militant action. They've been a quietly surviving secret minority all this time, too. And if homophiles can't get the job done... Put a pin in that. Until next week, on Episode 7, A Useful Citizen. Fanny Hurst, the host of Showcase, was a fascinating person. She was a novelist who not only explored feminism and racial inequality in her writing, but she was also an activist. She raised money to help Jewish refugees escaping Europe. She joined the Lucy Stone League in 1921 to fight for women to keep their maiden names, which she did when she married. And she was an advocate for Roosevelt's New Deal. Hearst wrote about sexual harassment, unwed pregnancy, and interracial relationships. She was friends with Zora Neale Hurston and Eleanor Roosevelt. By the time she did Showcase and had actual homosexuals on TV with her, it was a big deal. So I'm 
fucking honored to have my Aunt Dee voice her in this episode. Dee and her wife Betsy welcomed me out of the closet when I was 15 by taking me to New York City to see Patti LuPone and Gypsy. Oh my God, it meant everything to me. Join us tomorrow for a summer discussion on female homosexuals. Our guests include a member of a new organization, the Daughters... <laughs> I forgot how to say it. <laughs> new... Ins- <laughs> yes. I apologize once more that our program today has undergone severe censorship. I was talking. He's hearing me. Quit talking. I will. (laughs) This show... (laughs) This... (laughs) I get tickled. (laughs) He's laughing at me over there. They are two of the most ambitious and kind people I've ever known, and having gay guidance from inside your own family when you're a young queer is priceless. I'm very lucky. I'm so grateful to have them. I wish everyone could have lesbian guardian angels. Gender Bender Extraordinaire on Apple Podcasts says, I'm so happy this podcast is back. As a studier of queer history myself, I appreciate this podcast so much. It's accurate and entertaining. A, a must listen for any queer person. Knowing our history is power. Thank you so much, Gender Bender Extraordinaire. If you have a moment, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes in order to boost the show to new listeners. Another way to support the show? Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash queercereal. There are tons of fun rewards on there, including my bonus podcast, Forgotten Fairy Tales. You can hear standalone stories, deeper dives into stories that didn't make the cut here, follow characters from Queer Serial's main storyline on their own journeys, and listen to discussions between me and some of the real activists from the movement. Subscribe now at patreon.com slash queercereal. A big thank you to some of my top donors who have made Season 2 possible. Louis Poulain, my dear Jim Morrow, and the darling Michael McLennan. This season is also brought to you in part by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, San Francisco. Resources for the podcast can be found at QueerSerial.com. One in particular use for this episode that you won't find on my website quite yet is a very lengthy interview between me and Randy Wicker, the former Charles Hayden, introduced in the storyline in this episode. He told me approximately one million stories, and you'll be able to hear the full interview on my Patreon bonus podcast soon. For more visuals and stories that didn't make the cut, check out the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial. You can see Fanny Hurst, Randy Wicker, homophile publications from the years this episode took place, 1958-9, and tons more. Voice actors! Barbara Stevens was voiced by my dear friend Maggie Smith, transmasculine daughter of Belitis and Matashino Tony Segura, voiced by Olgi Fryer, other daughters of Belitis by Emily Baytek and Courtney Tesh, Barbara Giddings' Boss by Faye Camp, John Jensen by Mike Kanish, Bearded Showcase Man by Evan Kepnick, Hal Call by Dominic Caruso, Fanny Hurst, of course, by my aunt, Dee Blackburn, Albert Ellis by Will Roscoe, Del Martin by Salvio Gatto, Lorraine Hansberry, once again, by my wonderful cousin, Zoya Barker, James Baldwin by Samuel Miles, Cops by Mike Lysak and Matt Camp, Florence Jaffe by my other aunt, Adrian Barker, Phyllis Lyon by Jane Serenska, Don Lucas by my high school best friend who hid in a closet right next to mine, Jacob Wallace, Elver Barker by Joey Kane, hear more on my Patreon, Ron Argall by Dan Unser, Randy Wicker by Eddie Miller, Randy's Dad by John Roth, and more Mattachinos by Mike Kanish, Dan Unser, Owen Keenan, Gage Kyle, and Jack Murphy. Thank you so much to all the actors, friends, and family who contributed to this show. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at the USC Libraries. Thanks for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. 
See you next week. So I have one other question. Yeah. Did you ever watch uh, Smash? Oh, did I? <laughs> Love Smash. The first season's great. We're watching the second season now. I don't like the second season nearly as much.